Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We continue to work through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll have a couple more weeks in Ephesians. We'll be finished. And then probably I think the first Sunday in April we will begin a new study in the book of Daniel and be walking through that book as well. So I encourage you to be reading ahead in Daniel. Daniel is a fun fun book. And so I'm excited to begin studying that in my own, so I encourage you to do the same. Today we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, as we, as we come to your word today, we're continually reminded as we've had your word before us many times This morning, we are reminded that it is an encouragement to us as believers. It is a reminder to us the truth of the gospel, a reminder to us of the promises that we have in our Lord Jesus. And yet, even though all these things be true and we know them to be true in our hearts, we so easily wander away into to find some other truth that is no truth at all. Father, we pray that as we open your word together as your people, that you would direct our hearts, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would show us your truth, write it upon our hearts and our minds, that we might follow after you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to this passage... It's going to be dealing with the concept of work. When I think about work, it makes me think of a phrase that all of us have heard, probably not given a whole lot of thought to. It's just, okay, it's the the phrase or the term work ethic. When we hear it now, we typically associate it with maybe school or a student having a good work ethic or a job. Someone who's said to have a a good work ethic is someone who's generally a hard worker, someone who's desired by employers. It's a phrase that I used a lot growing up because my parents always instilled in me the, the, the importance of hard work. My dad would say, hard work is its own reward. And it's a saying that I have passed on to my own children. This, this concept of work ethic which literally means, think about the word ethics, is the study of right and wrong. And so this is the right and wrong concerning work. And this phrase is largely rooted in the Protestant Reformation, where ministers, especially John Calvin, uh, preached on this concept called Christian vocation. Christian vocation is the idea that each of us, regardless of the work that we are engaged in, has a divine purpose, such that anything that we do is work unto the Lord. It is seeing all of our work as an act of worship of God rather than to man. This view changed the way that the peasant, even in Calvin's day and before, saw his serfdom, you know, it's where he was just working for the man, so to speak. And this, this idea is credited by many historians as beginning the birth of what we call free market capitalism, which delivered a world from feudalism, saw the thing of 
that this thing called the peasant as a thing of the past and even crumbled long-held evil institutions like slavery. In our passage today from Ephesians, we have this view of work from the scriptures, but it's mingled with this context from the book of Ephesians going forward as we've been learning about this idea of restoration pretty much throughout the entire book. It began with the restoration of God's relationship with man. And for the last several chapters, we've dwelt upon the idea about this idea of man's relationship with man, man's restoration with each other. In our passage today, we see the restoration of a proper work ethic joined with the idea of how we should treat one another in Christ with dignity, respect, and honor, regardless of our station. As we move through the text, we'll see that our work has been redeemed along with our relationships, and hard work, both in our work and in our relationships, will serve as a normal and fulfilling means of the worship of our Creator. So as we consider the main, or as we consider this text, we'll look at three main ideas. First, work that is to the Lord. Then, second, the slave's work redeemed. And then thirdly, the master's work redeemed. So with that, let's look together at the text. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 5 through 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of Him, or doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So earlier I stated that the book of Ephesians is about restoration. We saw that at the end of chapter 5, as we saw the restoration of the relationship between husband and wife. Last week, Lars preached this idea of the relationship between parents and children is also restored in Christ. So this week we're looking at another relationship that has this, has subordination as a part of its makeup, and that is the relationship between the worker and their boss, or as the text puts it, the bondservant and their master. The word bondservant here requires quite a bit of cultural context before we jump into an interpretation of the text, And so, because chances are you may not have an ESV that translates this as bondservant, but yet translates it as the word slave. Because of the cultural connotations of the word slave in our country, we understand that it brings a lot of baggage with it. So I think it's important for us to kind of unpack some of that before we go forward. Without going into a whole lot of detail, slavery in the context that Paul was living in was much different than it was in our country 100 or 200 years ago. To be sure, both types of slavery were exploitation of human beings and is an insult to the inherent dignity of all people. All people are created in the image of God and should not be treated in any such way. But 
While slavery in America involved kidnapping and torture and refusal to recognize slaves as people at all. In ancient Rome, slave, this word slave, or the Greek word there, doulos, could mean lots of things. It was a very open-ended kind of word. It could mean a prisoner of war that was brought back to Rome to work. It could mean that. It could have meant a debtor, someone who had some debts and set of subjected themselves to slavery in order to pay back their debts. And there would have been a certain amount of time that that would have been required of them, and then they would have been set free after having come out from underneath their debt. It could also mean someone who subjected themselves to servitude in order to learn a particular trade or work. And that is where we see the word bondservant come in, which has a specific connotation to it. They would have learned the trade or become a part of a political family or something along those lines in order to become a part of something bigger than themselves. And oftentimes this had a very specific period of time in which they were called bond servants. It was a seven-year period where they subjected themselves to servitude and then would be set free after that time. Many times slaves in Rome were given status and property. They were a very important part of the Roman economy, not just simply as workers. They were builders, they were thinkers, philosophers, engineers, lots of different things. Some estimates suggest that as much as 50% of the city of Rome were slaves under this particular context. And understand, I'm not comparing and contrasting the, the, these words in American slavery or our ideas of it with Roman slavery in order to pass off the Bible's statements on slavery at all. Unfortunately, many times in our own history, many would use passages like the ones that we have today to show that the Bible supported their slavery, which is not right. Any fair reading of the Bible shows that the Bible speaks of slavery, sure, but it does not condone it. Rather, it speaks of slavery as a consequence of the sinful world that we live in. And in a world that is being redeemed and is redeemed in Christ, slavery has no place. As the inherent, inherent dignity of humanity is recognized and preached. It is the right preaching of the gospel that led to the abolition of slavery across the world. So as we come to this text, understand the passage is not condoning the presence of slavery at all. Rather, it's helping us to see how God is restoring man and work and the work that man does. Brings us to the first point, the work that is to the Lord. Look with me again at verse 8. Verse 8 is kind of the kind of the hinge point of the whole passage here. Knowing that whatever whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So the reason I chose to kind of start here in the middle again is because both the master and the bondservant are being brought together under this common idea that all the good that they do is just good that is going to, or all the work they do is going to be returned back from them. This verse is really addressed to anyone. This answers the question, here's work, then why should I do that work? It's commands both for the slave and the master. Why should you work? Why should you honor one another with your relationships that you have with one another? Because knowing whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. If you consider 
the context of the Bible as a whole and the fallen nature, as we go back to you know Genesis 3, where we like to go, the garden up until that point was a place that was full of food and life and regularly produced things for the people, for Adam and Eve, the only two people. The, all these trees, right? They were good for uh, they were good for food and delight to the eyes. And then they sinned. And what happened? Well, the garden decided it wasn't going to produce like it once did. In order to receive the bounty from the land, now man had to work it. There was going to be thorns and thistles, and he was going to do this work by the sweat of his brow. There was going to be difficulty. The Bible says, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. And that's just inanimate creation. That's just the dirt and the plants and all the things that don't have, how he would say, the breath of life. But what about when it comes to working with other people after this point? Well, just keep reading. When you get to Genesis 4, you can see how people work with other people. Not very well. The promise of return is much less when it comes to working with other people. People immediately began to dislike one another. There's murder, there's adultery, there's pride, there's jealousy, and you just have these things continuing to perpetuate themselves over and over throughout the rest of Scripture. Our work on this earth, combined with the people who live on it, only takes, because of sin's influence, it does not give back. It only takes from us. By the sweat of our brow, we will eat bread. That includes others around us. Nothing is easy because of sin in the world. But that is all different in Christ. Because of what Christ has done. As we read, remember back in Ephesians 2.10, what I think is most one of the most important passages in this whole book. That in Christ we have been made alive and now we are created in good works that we should walk in them. It's the main thrust of the good works that we do is to see the kingdom of God come to earth as an undoing of the curse that was placed on creation back in Genesis 3. And this is shown how we, in how we love our neighbor also. In the context of work, it is shown how we go about our work together with the people of this earth. That all of these things have been redeemed in Christ. One of the things that should set the Christian apart from any other employee or employer is that they are doing their work as unto the Lord. Because the believer should see and, to, and know that our work has been restored. And in Christ, our work now has meaning that goes beyond itself. It is no longer just toil. But it has real meaning in Christ. It has purpose and value. We no longer have... We no longer have to fear the toil of work as having no conclusion or no completion, kind of spinning our wheels, so to speak. But we now know that it finds its completion and fulfillment in Christ. So then we work diligently, knowing that our work, as verse 8 says, will be returned to us. Our work ethic should reflect the fact that we really believe the things that, that all things are being made new in Christ. Things have value because of Jesus. We really believe that and our work should reflect that. All things are being restored, whether it's creation itself or the relationships that we have with one another, both believers and unbelievers as well. 
when you consider the relationships that are that are in focus in this passage, it gives us a much broader understanding. The slave has hope because of the work of Christ on the cross. The master should build up rather than break down. That brings us to first the slave's work redeemed. Look with me again at verse five. And if you if your version has bond servants there, there's probably a little number one next to it that's taking you to the bottom of the page and saying this could also be translated as slave. Bond servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So first, a bit on the language here again. Bond servants could be translated slaves, but notice the category that masters are put in here. This is earthly masters, or literally in the text, it's in the flesh. Masters in the flesh, meaning that these masters are put over you in a kind of fleshly earthly, temporary kind of way. In Christ, all of these people, slave and master, are equal. But because of the particular social construct that they are set under, there is some authority structure that they must adhere to. This is much different than the relationships that we've been dealing with the last couple of weeks. This is much different than the relationship between husband and wife. Because when husband and wife are married, the two become one flesh. Right? There's this real change that's happening, or between children and parents. There's a real subjection there because it's within the context of the home. But here, it's a mere social distinction. And I think for the slave to read that, that would be very important. Your earthly master. They have no, they have no authority over you other than that which has been put over them ultimately by the Lord. And I think that's very important. The slave is Free in Christ, just as free as any free man is. I think that's really important here. Yet, we read that the slave or the bondservant should obey with fear and trembling, which you may think kind of seems out of place. We know that this idea of fear can mean respect or reverence. I want to make sure what we understand is that we understand what's going on here. This isn't just a mouth service kind of thing. This isn't just the kind of respect for a boss that simply pays lip service to them to their face, but is plotting their demise behind their back. Right? And the text goes on with that in verse 6. Not by the way of eye service, because it would be easy to kind of fake this idea of fear and trembling, right? To respect you, to, to look as if we respect you, but not actually do that. And so Paul addresses that. Not by the way of our service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. I think this is important. We aren't just mouthing sincerity for everyone to see and hear. So that, you know, it's kind of like, look at me, I'm respecting my boss over here. It's nothing like that. This is a heart issue. Paul is referring to the heart. We really do respect the position and their place of authority. And I understand that for many, this would have been hard because not every boss deserves this. Not every boss deserves this, and we know that. There's no command here, understand, there's no command here to commit sin in order to obey your earthly master, right? Well, the earthly master's told me I have to do these sinful things, and there's, there's no command here to do that, understand? 
We know that when a believer is asked to do something against God's law, that he or she should not do it. Yet when it comes to the respect for the position, should always show this because in doing so, they are doing the will of God. And this, I mean, think of our Lord Jesus, who put himself in subject to many, many people over his life. No one demonstrated this idea more than he did as he went to the cross. He became a servant so that you and I might be set free. Jesus said that if anyone practices sin, they are a slave or a bondservant to sin. And before Christ, that was each of us. But in Christ, He became our sin. He became that for us. He became a servant that we might be set free. He also said that if the Son has set you free, that you are free indeed. Consider that for a moment in the context of our work. Because there's nothing that enslaves us on this earth. There's nothing that can. The King of all creation has said, you are free. You are free indeed. And so we are no longer enslaved to creation. We are no longer enslaved to the curse that we saw in Genesis 3. We are no longer enslaved to the idea that by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. But yet our work now has meaning. Everything that we do has inherent value. Jesus has taken the sin of the world and in him all things are being made new. For the believer, this isn't just our natures as being born again in Christ, but all that we do, whether it be our relationships, our, our marriage, the relationship that we have with our children, the work of our hands, all of these things now have meaning because of what he has done for us, because they have found completion, fulfillment in Christ. So I want you to hear that if you're an unbeliever here this morning. There is no fulfillment outside of Christ. In fact, I have no idea why an unbeliever would want to do any of these things. Why you would want to do something that you believe has no fulfillment. Whether it be raising a good family or or being married and seeking to do well there or seeking to do well in your job, it makes no sense. Because outside of Christ, these things have no value, but in Christ, they have ultimate value. Even the most fulfilling job is completely useless without Christ in whom all things are being made new. Outside of Christ, there is only toil and work and there is death in this life and in the next. If Christ hasn't paid for your sins, then you're going to have to do that yourself. And you will do that for all eternity. Even the smallest sin deserves an eternity in hell. Rather than face Christ on that judgment day, instead call upon his name today and find mercy in him. Call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. For masters in our text, notice they are called to do the exact same. That brings us to the master's work redeemed. Look with me at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Do the same 
I think it's really easy to kind of gloss over these three words here, but they're very important because the slave's instruction was to obey the master as you would Christ, treating them as you would the Lord himself. So when the master considers his worker, there should be a treatment of dignity and respect and acknowledgement that each person has value outside of themselves or even outside of the way that you view them because of some temporary social construct. They are to go about as if their workers were Christ himself. We mentioned the story of Joseph a few weeks ago back in in the book of Genesis, and we've used him as an example, particularly as we were going through the Ten Commandments and looking at those. Remember the story of Joseph. He was mistreated his entire life, mostly by his family who sold him into slavery. And then he came to great power and authority, largely because he was a man of integrity. And his family had treated him horribly all those years or all those days or came looking for food. Joseph, rather than exacting his own vengeance, as he stood in authority over them now, treated them with dignity, recognizing that God meant his circumstances for good ultimately. When it comes to those who are in subordination to us, any authority we have over them comes directly from God himself. Imagine thinking that any authority you have comes from yourself. That is a wrong view of work. It is a wrong view of God. God, of course, has all authority. We cannot claim any single bit of it ourselves. So in every way, we should then treat them as we would want to be treated. You see this come out at the end of verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Stop your threatening. On whose authority are you threatening folks anyway? Imagine the the uh, ungodly master in this case threatening folks because they believe that their authority is of their own. I love how we're reminded here that both their master and yours is in heaven. God shows no partiality or favoritism. He's not going to allow you to treat people like garbage just because you think you're special. And I think that's great. It's, been, it's important for both slaves and masters in Paul's day and in our own day. We don't have slaves anymore, thanks be to God, but you can understand this as employees and employers. Stop your threatening. And I think it's even more important as we consider all the relationships and context here, because it's, it really applies to all of them, both husband and wife, parents and children, master-slave, just because there's an authority structure that has been set forth in Scripture doesn't mean that that authority can become unhinged, meaning that no authority ever has absolute authority, that no one who has any kind of authority that's been given by God has the ability to treat people badly. There's only one who has the ability or who has absolute authority and he is both their master and all of ours. He is in heaven. This is really important because sometimes people will take this passage or the preceding passage and have used it to, to justify some pretty horrendous things over the years. 
Children, obey your parents because it is right. does not give a parent the right to be abusive. In fact, it calls parents to a higher standard. Because God has called the children to obey us, then we need to act as if we deserve that distinction. We need to act as if we deserve to be obeyed in the first place. It calls us to a much higher distinction than it calls our children to. I mean, think the same for husbands. The wife is called to submit to a husband. She doesn't have to submit to abuse or immorality. And so it calls us as godly husbands to be someone who deserves that distinction. We see here with the master and the, and the worker. The master shows himself to be a jerk and the ones under them are not duty bound to suffer abuse and to commit sins under them at all. And so this calls those who are in authority to a much higher standard. And this is in Christ. The world doesn't honor this. The world honors pulling one another down in order to get just a little bit ahead. But in the Bible, both those who are in authority and those under them are given inherent dignity and respect because in Christ, all things are being restored to their right order. When Jesus gave his life, the sins of each of those relationships, those broken things about all of those relationships were nailed to the cross. And now in Christ, we have the option of not only following his commandments, but also seeing each one of these relationships as they ought to have been. This is calling, the calling is not just that we can have marriages and families and workplaces to glorify God, but that we can see the world being redeemed so that the world can see these relationships that we have and say, you know what? That's different. I want that. And then they'll want the one that we point to and preach about, our Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us live in such a way to show the world that we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ to be true. That we believe that all things are being made new in Christ Jesus our Lord, including ourselves first. Let us show ourselves to be those who believe that these relationships are right and restored in Him and in Him alone. Let us love one another as Christ has first loved us. And let us do our work as if there is a life beyond this one so that the world might see Jesus. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you in prayer, we admit that we have difficulty seeing beyond the end of our nose, much less the value in things that you have bought literally with your blood, that you have restored not only our lives, but you are restoring the world, that you are seeing your kingdom come, and that you are choosing to use broken vessels such as we to do just that. So Lord, help us. Help us to see the value that you are bringing, that you restore. Help us to live in such a way to honor you so that we might be sanctified, so that our relationships might grow in your grace and mercy, and so that the world will know that you are Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me now as we sing our response to God's word.